We're continuing on in our, our series in Philippians, and I will just tell you that uh, sometimes, uh, uh, in fact, especially early in my ministry, it was my practice every Mother's Day to have a, a Mother's Day sermon, every Father's Day to have a specific Father's Day sermon, and uh, uh, the women loved it, and uh, the guys complained. And, and, and the reason was because uh, on, on Mother's Day, I would be talking about how to honor your mother and all of those kinds of things. And the guys said, then on Father's Day, you tell us what sorry fathers we are so, <laughs> and how we need to do better. Uh, well, sometimes it is appropriate to, to focus uh, just for mothers. And we are going to focus on mothers today with this particular message and its, uh, its application is specifically for mothers, but it is also specifically for fathers. And it is also specifically if you have ever been a son or a daughter. <laughs> you get it. Uh, it is a, there is an application here for everyone that is here today and all of you who are watching online. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Not that I have already obtained this, this is Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. So Lord, we would ask that you would apply your word this message, these words uh, penned so long ago and yet that apply so specifically to all of your people. Will you cause your Holy Spirit to apply it to each of our lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Now, I told you that we are uh, working through uh, Philippians, and so he talks about a, a goal here, and I just want to remind you where we've, where we've been, because when we break it up week after week, it's not like it would have been when the letter was originally written. So what, what I want, the goal is, <clears throat> verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from 
the dead. So that goal is to know him in that way. But very quickly, the very next phrase, verse 12, he gives a clarification. And he, here's what he says. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So when he says, not that I've already obtained this, it, it cannot be talking about salvation. Some have wanted to apply it that way. It, that's not what it is. Uh, otherwise, it would be teaching that salvation was by works, by, by our efforts. And that would contradict the previous passage in Philippians. It would contradict the rest of Paul's teachings, the rest of the New Testament, and the rest of Scripture. So it's, it's not speaking uh, of that. So what is the this to take hold of is to be like Christ. It is fullness in Christ. Not coming to know Christ in the first place, but experiencing in this life, not waiting for something for the future, but in this life, experiencing a fullness in him. Now, he talks about a perfection here and uh, that uh, he says he's not already perfect. There were evidently those in uh, uh, Philippi that were teaching that you can become perfect. You can get to the point where uh, you, you don't sin anymore, so you've achieved perfection in this life. And uh, that's been taught. It's a heresy, but it's been taught off and on down through uh, the centuries. Uh, the problem is you've got to totally redefine perfection if you're going to believe that. And that's what tends to happen to where some would say, well, I don't sin anymore, uh, but I do make mistakes and so on. Um, okay, well, if you make a mistake and you violate God's law, that's a sin, okay? So uh, he is addressing the idea of uh, a perfectionism. He's confronting that. And I have to think this must have been really encouraging to the the believers in uh, Philippi. Because he's, he's basically saying, look, I'm, I'm not some kind of a superman. I haven't achieved perfection. And those who had been taught about perfectionism probably would have said, well, if anybody can achieve perfection, then, then the apostle Paul could have. But instead, Paul is saying, look, I'm on this journey to experience fullness in Christ, and I want you on this same journey, in this same race with me, and I want to tell you how to run it. And that journey lasts as long as we live. That's what goes on, and that's what he is addressing. So look at the process, verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies 
ahead. Now, here's the other thing he is doing for them. He is, especially those who were hearing, oh, okay, so we can't achieve perfection, then I guess we're just all a bunch of sinners, and so I'll just ride this out until we, we go to glory and let Jesus take care of that. And he says, no, no, that's not the way it is. You, you cannot be uh, com- complacent. You can't say, well, nobody's perfect, and I can't be perfect, so I'll just uh, let things go and, and do whatever I want. D.A. Carson said this, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. Here's what we drift toward. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and call it freedom. You see what he's saying? Paul is not coasting. He is running hard after the prize. So here's what we need to do, according to Paul. If you're looking at the outline, you see uh, the first thing is forgetfulness. I've called it a sanctified forgetfulness because I want to define what that forgetfulness really is, where he says, forgetting what lies behind. That's easy enough to say, but what does it mean? Um, When we think of forgetfulness, we usually think of actual memory. And enough of you uh, have told me of your issues with that, that some of you might say, oh, well, great. I'm, I'm halfway there because I'm great at forgetting. He's not talking about actual memory. Let's, let's define, first of all, what this forgetfulness is, is not. What is this forgetting is not. Um, it's not just uh, losing it from our memory or putting it out of our memory. Uh, Hebrews 10 says this, and this is about God, and this is how we want to compare. What, what is the Bible saying when it talks about forgetting? Hebrews 10:17 I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I'll forget them. Quotes from Jeremiah For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So when we talk about God forgetting it's not talking about memory because if it was really something that uh, he, that he no longer remembered, then there would be something in this universe that he did not know, and God knows everything. He's omniscient. So it's not about something totally being out of his mind or ours. It's also not just repressing a true memory. Uh, not somehow pretending those things never happen. I'll just move on from that. I'll just put that, that behind me. It's not just positive thinking either. I'll just think about good things and, and, and not think about the past. If the only forgetting that you are doing in terms of what 
has been your past, if, if the only forgetting you're doing is what I've just described, then, then you haven't really dealt with your past, and it will come back in some way. And likely, it will not be a healthy way. So what is forgetting then? Well, the Greek word here uh, literally means to neglect, overlook, or care nothing about. One commentator says this about uh, Paul, how he's forgetting. He will not allow either the achievements of the past, which God has wrought, or for that matter, his failures as a Christian to prevent his gaze from being fixed firmly on the finish line. In this sense, he forgets as he runs. I love that phrase. He forgets as he moves forward, as he runs. That's a part of the forgetting. He doesn't dwell in the past on the the great things that have happened because, after all, that's what God has done. Or on failures. So if we think about how God remembers no more, it means that our, our sins will no longer affect our standing with him. That's what that scripture means. We may have to deal with ramifications of our sin in this life. But it will not, uh, David did, for instance, but it will not damage our relationship with God when there has been forgiveness. And that's what he means, that God has forgotten or remembers them no more. For us, it is breaking decisively with the power of of the past, and the past can have power over us. And understanding that we can't alter the past but we can put the meaning of the past in perspective. That's how Paul did it. Let me read you from another one of his letters about how he grappled with that, but also how he dealt with his past. We all know, because we've talked about what his past was. He had lots of things that that, uh, from a human perspective, one would be ashamed of. You would never want to bring up again. You would want to move on from. Here's what he says. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service. So he's saying, God called me into, into this, and I'm thankful for that. In the same, the, this is still the same sentence. Though formerly... He's about to say what his past was. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's saving, uh, saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's reminding himself and, and the one he's writing to. That's why he came in the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the worst. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, he says, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And now, so he's, he's said all this. He's, he's thought about his past. He's called himself the foremost sinner. Uh, and then he's remembering uh, the mercy of God through Christ on him to even use him. And he can't help himself at this point. So he's writing in this letter and the very next phrase is, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't help himself. He hadn't lost the wonder of his salvation. You get it? So yeah, the, his past was there. But his past wasn't where he went back to and moped about it and got depressed about it. And, and instead, it caused him to think on the mercy of Christ, the mercy of God through Christ, the work of Jesus. And it drove him to praise. See, that's what it is to put it behind. So how do we forget the past? Well, part of it is by facing forward. Uh, he says, straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, some commentators uh, think Paul uh, was alluding to the chariot races in ancient uh, Greece. If you can picture, um, you know, a, this is almost, you know, maybe this is like a chariot. I don't know how big they were, but uh, uh, without a pulpit, they wouldn't have had a pulpit in it, okay? But they didn't have a seat either. And so it, when they're in the race, what they had to do was strain forward to control the horse or horses. We've all seen Ben-Hur. We know what it looked like and so on, right? So they, and if they stood up straight or they leaned back, they lost the race. They were out of it. So that's, that's what he seems to be alluding to, that... The prize is there. The finish line is there. And I'm going to be leaning forward and straining toward it as much as I can. And then he basically says, don't stop. Persevere. Keep going. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So for Paul. The same zeal that he had talked about back in verse 6. He, he, he said, you know, you remember my zeal? My zeal led me to be a persecutor of the church. And now he's saying that same zeal is about Christ. And it is driving me in terms of pursuit of this prize. So here's the question for us. What if we put the kind of effort into our spiritual life that we put in other things we love? 
our hobbies, our sports teams. That's a nonpartisan statement, by the way, in terms of a passion for a sports team. That's not wrong. But you know what? For, for some people, everybody they meet know who their team is. What if everybody we met knew who we were owned by? Knew we belonged to Christ? What if that took place? Here's another key, though, when it comes to this race. And that is, don't compare yourself with others that are in the race, or you will become discouraged or maybe even give up. When I was a pastor in Atlanta, that's been a number of years ago now, I was there 18 years, but it was a while back, and I I clarify that because I'm about to talk about uh, what I would do every 4th of July. Every 4th of July, virtually every year I was there, I ran the Peachtree Road Race. Now, the Peachtree Road Race was, uh, it's a 10K, 6.2 miles. And I would, you know, run all year so that I could run it and not perish in the middle of it, uh, hopefully. And um, so when I started running it, it had been going for a number of years, and it was, it was a, it's a huge race. Uh, when I started running it, they capped it at 25,000 people. The last time I ran it, they capped it at 55,000 people. So here's, here's what happens uh, with a race that large. Um, they have to start you in sections, and it's either by how fast you've run other races, because when you apply, you, you give a, an expected time, uh, or you can just guess. And uh, so the, the fastest runners are up front, and then it progresses. And so I was like, way in the back, you know. Um, and I remember uh, one year, and this is when it all kind of came to me, uh, and, and it's an event, it's so much fun, uh, but I remember basically it was like 25 minutes after the, they had shot the gun to start the thing that our group started, okay? Because they start them and let them go for a few minutes and then they start the next so that there's no pile up or anything. And so we hadn't, our group hadn't even gone a mile and I saw runners that I later found out were, were from Kenya and they were running the opposite direction on the sidewalk. And uh, that was because they had finished the race and were running back to the start to get their ride to go to the airport and and, and leave. They probably were out of uh, the country before I finished. But but they uh, they were running faster going back than we were that way. Okay, so what do you get when... Uh, you complete the Peachtree Road Race. Well, other than those few who uh, win and get prize money and and, uh, medals and that kind of thing, you get a T-shirt. It's a coveted T-shirt, though, because it's a different color and design every year. They have a big design contest. And so people wear them very proudly. And uh, I I remember one year that I uh, was wearing it a couple days after the race in a 
a mother with her uh, little girl said, oh, look, he must uh, he ran the Peachtree Road Race just like your daddy. And the little girl said to me, did you win? <laughs> and I said, no, I, I didn't really win. She said, what place did you come in? <laughs> and I said something like, oh, about 45,000th, you know. <laughs> So, uh, but I would get to the end, I'd get the t-shirt and, and so on, and that, w- that was the prize. Now, I tell you that to say I loved running it. It was great. But if I had dwelt on the winners or all of those that were ahead of me and dwelt on that kind of thing or those around me or the few that I might pass if they're walking or whatever, it would have been discouraging. So Paul is saying, look, we're in a race. And it's not about getting a t-shirt. The race, the goal, the finish line is fullness in Christ. Don't look around at at all the others, strain forward. You, wherever you are in the race, don't think about those who are way more mature than you or more mature you think than, than uh, uh, you will ever be, that no more. Don't do that. Instead, keep your eye on that finish line. C.S. Lewis wrote this in... in uh, The weight of glory. He said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you get it? Think what's offered to us. And he tells us how, how to strain forward. So let me, let me summarize with two things as we move forward that are necessary to not be haunted by our past. We need to know and experience two things. One is forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That forgiveness is not something that we will receive if we run a good enough race and get to the end. That forgiveness is given to us at the start line when we trust in Christ alone for our eternal life. That's when you receive that forgiveness. But then we need to live our life in light of that truth. And that brings us to the second thing we must experience And that is that we must know that we cannot control nor are we responsible for what others have done 
to us. That's a part of your past. But we can't control it. And we're not responsible for that. We are to keep our eyes forward. That will always be a part of our life. But that does not define us. If you're a believer trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be overwhelmed by facing your past. You're no longer defined by your past. If you're in Christ, you are a child of the living God. And that is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together. That's good news, Lord. Thanking you and knowing that our identity is in you. We are so grateful. But we can only do that. We, never in our own strength, but only by your grace and with your strength can we press forward. Can we leave what happened in the past in its right perspective, but knowing that you're not going to hold us accountable for that when we're in Christ Jesus. So we pray all this thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen.